Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and we are joined today by Meenakshi Gigi Durham, professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Iowa in the cosmopolitan writer's heaven that is Iowa City, Iowa. She also holds a joint appointment in the Department of Gender, Women's Studies, and Sexuality Studies. Um, And she's here today to talk to us about her upcoming book, Me Too, The Impact of Rape Culture in the Media, Polity Press 2021. Hi, Gigi. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. So uh, how are you? How's Iowa? Um, Iowa's great in a sense, although we're expecting a blizzard today and a polar vortex in the next few days. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But the (laughs) Stand and read and write, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, a little too. Yeah, Iowa is uh, cold. Yeah, you, the plains are cold. Uh-huh. Yeah, wonderful. Are you teaching this spring? I am. <clears throat> yes, I am. <clears throat> I am teaching. Actually, I'm teaching a graduate seminar in gender and media, which is fun, and um, and yeah. a writing class at the undergraduate level, uh, writing across cultures. So, which is um, aimed at teaching sort of young journalists how to write thoughtfully and accurately and sensitively about unfamiliar cultures. So, Oh, that sounds really nice. Mm-hmm. What a good schedule. I'm enjoying I... both of those courses. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Are you face-to-face? Uh, no, no. Well, I'm teaching entirely on Zoom. There are some face-to-face mm-hmm. classes here, but I'm, I'm online. Yeah. yeah, that's nice. Although it is sometimes nice to leave one's home, but... <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, there's been a lot of lamentation about the lack of school days or snow days. Pardon. I know. I think I think school age children are heartbroken about that. <laughs> <laughs> they should be because a snow day is this gift from the universe. Yeah. Just like, woo. Uh, all right. OK, so let's jump in here with this book. So the first thing I want to do is sort out just how this current work is situated within your intellectual journey. And so you have two single author books before this, yeah? The quite famous Lolita effect, Mm -hmm. the media sexualization of young girls and what we can do about it with Overlook Press 2008. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And then technosex, Mm -hmm. precarious corporealities, mediated sexualities, and the ethics of embodied techniques. Um, Paul Grave 2016. And both of these address modern mass media explorations of sexuality and gender, right? They do. Um, and then Me, Me Too seems to follow quite naturally, right? It's right in your sweet spot. But it seems a bold choice also to take on something that's so famous, so controversial. What made you decide to write this book? So, yes, I mean, in a sense, the book does represent one more step in a long trajectory of research on sexual violence in the media you know, and my, the media's role in the widespread and unceasing prevalence of sexual violence. I've actually been studying mediated sexual violence since like the 1990s. And in mm-hmm. addition to the books you mentioned, I have a lot of articles on the topic. So, so yeah, I mean, in, in that sense, yes, it is sort of just a, maybe a logical move in my, in my interest. But actually, you know, the book was, I think it was inspired, you know, truly by hearing Tarana Burke speak at the University of Iowa. Um, her focus on survivors, on the healing power of speaking the truth of sexual assault to create a community of resistance was very powerful. And um, that happened in 2018 uh, when she spoke here, just after the Me Too hashtag went viral, right around the time Harvey Weinstein was charged with rape. And the stories were coming about, uh, out about his decades-long crimes against women, about, again, the decades of sexual assault at Fox News, about Gian Gomeshi at CBS, all these court cases but also all these women speaking out at last. And of course, these cases were making headlines because the women were media figures. Mm-hmm. And like, so yeah, there was so much justified critique in the fact that this sort of sexual violence had been happening for decades in many spaces and places. Yet until these white female celebrities spoke out, it wasn't an issue. I mean, Tarana Burke had been doing this work for years before Alyssa Milano tweeted. But her tweet, of course, was like, the shot heard around the world, so to speak, you know, <laughs> for a worldwide anti-rape revolution. So there was just so much to think about there. Um, and um, all of this made me sort you know, like, I, you know, all of this discourse around me to embrace the intersectional politics of gender, race, and class, as well as other identity positions, such as disability and sexual orientation, and what the feminist scholar Alison Phipps called the political whiteness of the Me Too hashtag. And the fact that the U.S. hashtag was, uh, in a sense, overshadowed the feminist and coalitional anti-rape activism that was already underway in so many, um, you know, countries and contexts. Um, and, and so all of this made me think about the issue in terms of a sort of Foucauldian apparatus, a dispositif mm-hmm. comprised of multiple vectors. And I realized that the media had more to do with sexual violence than we, that we were even acknowledging. And that set me on the course for this book. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, um, it's a really fertile time. It's funny that you mentioned Alice and I just spoke to her this morning, actually. Oh, did you? Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's been quite a, quite a day for me. Me too was. Uh, so can you tell me, um, I'm interested in, and I think our readers will be as well. Um, can you walk us through your research process? What do you consult as you prepare for, for, for writing this book or any book really? Um, right. So, you know, I, I'm going to just sort of maybe th- start with the way I was thinking about it to pick up on that idea of the Foucauldian mm-hmm. apparatus. Um, you know, I was thinking that the media industries themselves were active sites of sexual violence, mostly perpetrated by men against women. So, you know, I was, you know, I wanted to sort of take a step back and look at it, you know, maybe to give it a more sort of scopic view as you will, uh, you know, if you will, um, you know, I wanted to think about 
you know, what was happening in the media workplaces, because that was actually, you know, one of the key sites of sexual violence. And actually, one recent study indicated that more women experience sexual assault um, in the media industries than in any other white collar profession. So there was something going on there. And my book was born of reflecting on the media kind of as a totality, as a workplace, as a representational system, as a terrain for resistance and feminist activism, too. So I wanted to look at a bigger picture, you know, not just the hashtag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good way to start. Because uh, one of my questions, um, and it's a huge one, is kind of how you use the term the media in this book, which, and the media has to be like what one of the most abused terms in popular culture right now, um, including a lot of like unra- irrational loathing um, and misunderstanding what that possibly means. So how do you use it here? Because you use it in a lot of ways, actually. I do, uh, I do, yeah. yeah. And it is it is one of those you know words that, that has such a broad capacity, right? So I think of it in, more in terms of media culture, which is a term that Doug Kellner uses in you know in his work. Um, it's you know it's more than it's, you know it's not just one thing. And I think you know Bourdieu actually referred to the media as heterogeneous, right? Um, so I really wanted to look at you know, the media, I want to do a multifaceted analysis of the media environment. You know, as I said, the workplace conditions that condone and conceal violence, but also the mediated representations and images through which rape culture is circulated and interpreted, and the ways in which media, especially social media, have become a catalyst for silence breaking. So, you know, media is just so, the, the word is so complex. And so I wanted to capture some of that complexity in the way that I, I approached it here. And you do, you walk through, you know, this is a very thoughtful book, and you walk through the way you use this term. Um, similarly, amorphous and difficult to deal with is the idea of rape culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us how you use that term in this book? Yes. And so that's not a new term. You know, that is a term that second wave feminists, you know, really came up with. And and I'll just sort of pause for a moment to explain that I, I do use the wave metaphor, even though I know it's contested in so many different ways, but it's a useful shorthand for sort of periodizing and talking about, you know, sort of philosophical movements and in, in feminism. And it's, you know, it's not perfect, but it it works, I guess. Um, so, um, so yeah, like, so rape culture, um, I, I really did want to think about that as um, a systemic issue um, uh, that, um, you know, that's embedded in, in uh, our, our societies in, in different ways, um, that it, uh, and also that it, it, it's a place where we can affect some transformation. So, um, so that, that term also, I think, is quite, um, quite broad, I, you know, I don't um, specifically engage in any sort of legal analysis, right? I'm not really taking on the term rape legally, but what I do want to do is, um, you know, just think about gender roles, power structures, uh, the ways in which a culture of <clears throat> sexual violence is embedded into not just our organizations, but into um, discourses and you know it's so prevalent and it's so widespread and it, it happens in so many different contexts and places and they're not all the same of course and so there's so many different vectors that um, that and contexts that affect you know how rape is experienced um, by different people at different moments and so but at, at the same time you know it's almost undeniable that 
you know, that that sort of culture exists in, in, you know, just about every context that there are very few societies that are in which rape is not a, you know, a prevalent social issue, a prevalent mm-hmm. social problem. So, so again, you know, thinking about, you know, media culture and rape culture, like both kind of um, look at, again, sort of the, the capillaries through which sexual violence kind of diffuses itself into culture. Right. And the way that's replicated and, you know, the the way that rape culture and the way it's portrayed kind of speak to one another and continue this, you know, and continue to assure the the success of both, right? Yes, exactly right. I mean, what I'm saying is uh, in the book is that the impact of rape culture, um, you know, is woven into our social fabric, as I said, and in part, it's because of the you know, because of the media, really, um, the, yeah. you know, the, the workplace sites of media organizations, but also the way that whole, uh, in, that whole um, issue is circulated and represented via the media. Yeah, I mean, the first line of your book, which is bold and very provocative, is the media are a linchpin in the contemporary feminist movement against sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And you go on very quickly to demonstrate that you mean this as a physical location and a metaphorical location. Right. And a immersive location, yes. Yeah. Um, And I'm interested, um, well, paradoxically, maybe, I don't know if it's paradoxically. Anyway, all right. Rape culture in the media is deeply entwined with the idea of silence. Yes. Um, And I would, can you comment on this for me? Yeah. I mean, actually, silence was something I was really reflecting on a lot because a lot of the the discussion that people have been having around Me Too was about silence breaking. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the more I thought about the the way that, that that sexual violence had happened within media organizations and had been perpetrated uh, by, uh, you know, media men, I guess, <laughs> um, for the most part. Um, actually, I think in every case, I can't think of one that wasn't. Well, I, yeah. Um, but, um, but in fact, there was a lot of silencing that was involved there. It wasn't simply silence breaking. I mean, the, just the very fact that, um, you know, this kind of sexual violence had gone on for, you know, years and years and years in, you know, for example, the Weinstein Corporation or Fox News and CBS News and so on. You know, um, it's, it, it seemed to me that the media industries were effective silencing operations, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of like Rowena Chu and Zelda Perkins, who were employees of Weinstein's, signed a draconian NDA that silenced them for like 20 years and prevented them from speaking even to therapists and about the experience. They, they said later that they had incredible post-traumatic trauma, you know, and so, you know, so I'm actually, you know, making an argument about the, the ways in which the media um, are silencing mechanisms as well as, you know, giving rise to this kind of silence breaking that's happened uh, you know, especially after the hashtag went viral. So, so you know, the media are contested terrain and they're not all, you know, one thing or the other and they're not sort of purely resistant um, or sort of purely repressive, but there are both of those things happening at once. Well, and there's, I mean, and silence, silencing and silence breaking is also a math, a, 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 something about degrees, right? It's, it's a, there's a matter of degrees there. Some people are allowed to speak and some people are silenced. Yes, absolutely. And that is something I address in the book as well. Like one of the chapters in the book is about the Time magazine cover that featured um, what they called the silence breakers, the voices that launched a movement. And they had, you know, they had 
Taylor Swift on the cover and Ashley Judd and, um, you know, uh, let's see, I'm uh, trying to see who else, you know, they had um, Isabel mm. Pasquale, who was an agricultural worker who had experienced um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> sexual violence and so on. Uh, but they didn't have Tarana Burke on the cover, you know, and even though they were talking about the voices that launched the movement, they had actually left out, erased um, the actual women of color who had launched the movement, you know, who was almost single-handedly responsible for launching this movement. So um, so I, I look at not only how her erasure, you know, silences her role in this whole thing and the role that women of color have actively play, played in, you know, generating this resistance, but also like centuries of resistance against sexual violence by women of color. And so like, that is a silencing that has happened to around me too. Yeah, uh, very clearly. I mean, there is, this is a really good place. I think that me too is such a good reminder that there's an unequal treatment culturally as well as legally Mm -hmm. between white survivors and black survivors, famous survivors and not, you know, Um, and we go on and on wealthy and poor. Yes, absolutely. Um, And yeah. And so in this book, I really wanted to take that sort of intersectional approach too, and um, um, you know, make sure that I was paying attention to to those uh, you know the the um, the differential influences of race and class and ability and nation on who could speak and who couldn't. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, yeah, I like. I think we've hit on the race, class, ethnicity, and kind of colonialist. Mm-hmm. things that are going on there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to make uh, another thing and kind of want to spend some time on the, uh, on rape myths, mm-hmm. right? So there, you, you argue there are a number of rape, rape myths and their general acceptance contributes to silencing. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you comment on that? Um, yes. Again, there've been, you know, there's been, you know, again, a lot of scholarship around this mm-hmm. issue um, and so, um, you know, of course, I think on the one hand, media images and text can also um, contribute to a sort of sy- you know, systemic validation of rape myths. But um, the rape myths, you know, sort of include the notion that um, you, you know, that certain women, for example, are, there's a lot of victim blaming involved in, in rape myths that um, women in some sense are asking for it, you know, in terms of... Uh, the way they dress or, you know, the fact that they were in a certain place at a certain time or, um, you know, those, those sorts of, um, ideas about, um, that they were drinking, yeah, but, you exactly. know, how they were dressed. Yeah. Yeah. All of those kinds of things, you know, that the women say, um, they mean yes when they say no, for example, you know, that, you know, there's token resistance or, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a whole series of, of these sorts of myths that, um, and then, you know, just the fact that the, the legal system treats women so um, unequally uh, when it comes to uh, uh, reporting rape, that some women are seen as more credible than others. You know, again, there's data to show that, um, you know, in fact, uh, the mo- cases that are most likely to be uh, prosecuted, to be followed up in the criminal justice system, at least in the United States, is uh, if a white woman accuses a black man of, of sexual yeah. violence mm-hmm. still. And so, um, and so, other women's um, accounts and trans women's accounts are discredited and um, you know disbelieved. I, I actually have something in the book too about a disability, uh, a person, a, a woman with a disability, and on, on um, again, a, a Twitter um, um, 
you know, encounter that um, discussed uh, people with disabilities who had experienced um, uh, sexual violence, like, you know, being told, like, who would, who would rape you, right? You know, I mean, so, so because, and then there's this whole notion that survivors lie about being raped, if mm-hmm. they were grudge against the perpetrator, you know, women's credibility in so many different ways is uh, questioned. And so that has a silencing effect. Of course it does. You know, women are afraid to rep- report because, because it is, it is so traumatizing to, to be disbelieved. And to sure. not, you know, and they're worried about repercussions too, because there are a lot still of social repercussions to reporting. So, yeah, and I mean, just in, aside from you know, sometimes even legal repercussions, the idea that you know, a, some a girl just kind of regrets her her bad choices of the night before, and that can be devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that women actually secretly enjoy rape is another thing you yes. talk about, which is so disturbing. It is so disturbing. I know that women, yeah, that have, have that these are just whatever, yeah, acting out some sort of yeah. sexual violence fantasies or something like that. And, and in fact, of course, I mean, women and all, I think, sexual assault survivors, um, they know the difference between, you know, welcome mm-hmm. sex, you know, what Catherine Cannon calls welcome sex mm-hmm. and, and non-consensual or violent sex. I mean, it's not as though yes. we're confused about these things. <laughs> no, women are not. And then also another thing that you note that I want to make sure our listeners understand is the idea of kind of how you define rape, right? That rape has to be heterosexual, mm-hmm. penetrative, non-marital or stranger, uh, violent or at least forced, and that that if if a rape doesn't fit those categories, it's not likely to be taken seriously in any realm. Right. And that's another rape myth. You know, that definition of what constitutes real rape is another rape myth. Because of course, you know, rape happens in so many different contexts to so many different kinds of people. You know, to it happens to men. You know, men are not always perpetrators. The uh, you know, uh, or or only perpetrators. Um, it happens a lot to trans people, and that is so under the radar because of so many different you know uh, social biases. Um, so I mean, the, fortunately, at least in the U.S., the FBI has somewhat expanded its definition of rape recently to include you know some of these different contexts. But I think in the popular kind of imagination or perception. You know, yeah, a rape is still a guy, a strange guy jumping out of the bushes at you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, as you, as is clear throughout this book, mm-hmm. that matters. <laughs> like, it's great that the FBI is is expanding their definition, but until we can make sure our neighbors understand that as well, yes, exactly. You know, we we have a dangerous situation, an unsafe situation. Yes, and a silencing situation when that yeah. that the, the prevents women from from reporting or disclosing or pursuing any sort of recourse, even, even therapy. Yeah. Which then prevents them from making sense of it and prevents them from healing and not self-blaming. And yes, I know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um, so your first, the first chapter of your, the body of this book explores the U S media corporations that were, uh, the epicenter of the revelations that fueled the global spread of hashtag me too. And you begin by addressing the monsters, these kind of shape shifter characters that were beloved family dads, news anchors, charming actors in public, but were actually predatory animals in another guise. Right. And yeah, I'm interested kind of why you started here um, and what you wanted to do with that information. Um, You know, in a sense that starting point was also sort of picking up on, what was very prevalent in the news accounts. And I think 
you know, we were, I think all of us were intrigued and maybe even taken aback when we learned about, for example, Bill Cosby, who had been such a beloved media figure, Ray Cliff Huxtable, you know, America's dad. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, people like Matt Lauer, like these were people that, you know, had come into our living rooms every morning and seemed so charming and so wonderful and, you know, family men. And, you know, they're the, the, again, the mythology around them was, you know, really so, so positive they were so part of the fabric of not only american life but i think um they were known around the world because you know so so much of u.s media is transnational and it circulates globally and so um and so i think there was a little there was so much shock around that um uh, around that um revelation those revelations of sexual violence on the part of these men in particular um which um you know i it, you know, I, I, again, that was that was sort of an interesting idea and metaphor, just because that word "monster" was used by so many of the women who who reported, you know, the, these crimes. You know, Rose McGowan talked of Harvey Weinstein as the monster in her biography, Brave, her autobiography, Salma Hayek, and a New York Times, you know, her New York Times editorial, Harvey Weinstein is my monster too, and so on and so. And it really made me sort of think about this whole notion of the monster and what they represent for us. You know, id forces, mm-hmm. sadism, violence. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system and i mean one of the characteristics of the monster is that you think you know them but you don't those are some of like humanity's most terrifying monsters or the ones that are secretly something else yeah absolutely right i mean those that's the the vampire myths kind of come out of that um you know they are the werewolves you know ordinary looking people who you know turn into something really deadly under the full moon yeah demonic possession etc yeah it's all about this idea that you don't you want to know at least what you're facing and in these cases certainly not um but you go on a meet like after discussing this you go on to do a fair a really uh fairly widespread like fairly serious ponderous analysis that it's not just about these men or any individual actor who managed to get away with decades of sexual harassment or sexual assault. It's about these underlying structural issues that allow this to happen. Yes, exactly. Um, um, go ahead. What, what are these? Like, what's in play here? Right. So, you know, what I'm really looking at is how organizational systems and structures were enabling this sexual misconduct to occur, you know, without acknowledgement, without any form of, you know, penalty against these men over the span of years, decades, right? I mean, and, and again, this is part of our sort of rape mythology, too. We, we tend not to look at it as systemic. We tend not to look at the structural factors that, uh, you know, not only, I think, actually sort of engender sexual violence, but also support it and sustain it and silence it and so on. You know, our, our typical sort of, again, the stranger in the bushes view is, oh, that was just one crazy guy. There was something wrong with the one particular mm-hmm 
person, right? That person was patholo- you know, is pathological in some way. And, you know, so we, once we put that person in jail or something, you know, once we deal with that person, the problem's over. But I think, you know, the frequency and scope of these kinds of behaviors call for a totally different level of analysis, right? Because, you know, there was such a similar pattern across these, um, these different media organizations. And then when we start looking at other you know, work environments, we're seeing that these violations occur um, there too, which is not to say they're all the same, but also that, but, but that we should look at organizational elements that tacitly condone sexual violence at work. And we should look at the sort of broader um, mobilizing structures there. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I've started to look at, first of all, the uh, immense power held by men in those organizations. Right. And I, you know, um, when there's that sort of inequity in an organization, a gender inequity, um, then it, you know, then it's sort of, um, you know, allowing men in high positions, um, you know, to, to dominate and abuse women without any repercussions. I mean, it doesn't mean that all of them will, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that because they hold that much power, um, there really aren't any checks and balances, you know, they can use that status to, um, you know, to, uh, uh, to engage in misconduct and various levels. It may not just be sexual either, but, um, but there's no, you know, again, there's no pushback against them because they hold so much power. And I, in the book, I talk about it as sort of a, a version of the nobleman's right, you know, just having right of sexual access to people with less power as in a senior, you know, in a manorial system or whatever, a manorial system. Um, and then I, I also look at psychological entitlement, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is also part of being very uh, high status within an organization, <clears throat> because that sort of comes with it as, I mean, that brings with it the idea that one should receive sort of, you know, desirable treatment without any concern, consideration of you know, like earning it or deserving it in some way. You know, they're just, they, they hold these positions of tremendous power and so uh there's just a sense of um you know i can i can do whatever i want in this in this kind of situation because i deserve all these perks because i'm such an important person in the workplace and uh sexual access to women is one of those perks um mm-hmm. yeah and um and then you know the other thing i talk about particularly in the media industries is there's there's really sort of retrograde expectations of women. And that was particularly evident at Fox News, you know, where there's reports that women were pressured to wear, you know, heavy beauty pageant makeup and, um, you know, short skirts and high heels. And, you know, they say Roger Ailes had an obsession with women's legs and he arranged the studio sets so that, you know, he even had a leg cam so that, you know, (laughs) the camera was focused on their legs. And, um, you know, and so, you know, this, of course, you know, in, um, I think in organizations where, you know, women have a lot more sort of freedom to, to decide, you know, of course there's such a thing as, you know, professional attire. I get that. But, but this particular, this was sort of sexually objectifying kinds of um, expectations of women. And so, so there were, there were gender dynamics at work that, that, um, you know, that again, I think sent men the message that women were sexual targets. And, and only to be considered as sexual beings. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that a bit more. Your second chapter really looks at cultural content from pornography to the reportage on Me Too, um, 
that kind of demonstrates how rape culture is discussed on this kind of global cultural stage. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are your what kind of arguments are you making there? Um, in the in the chapter on reporting, um, yeah, and then you know about kind of why why that why rape culture continues and how our our conversation about pornography, et cetera, contributes to this. Yeah. I mean, I was doing a couple of things in that chapter. You know, I think um, one of the things I was looking at was, you know, so the, the more progressive aspect of reporting, you know, which was, you know, uh, the coverage of the Larry Nasser case, for example, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of those ways in which, and Jeffrey Epstein, things like that, the way, uh, you know, so journalism was actually, um doing a great or the catholic church scandal um was doing a really good job of um uh showing us like how the systemic abuse was unfolding and um and you know actually writing in terms of sort of revealing and denouncing rape culture in our societies um but again you know as people have pointed out there were again sort of class and um racial you know biases in that kind of reporting if it hadn't been you know, gymnasts who had been affected by Larry Nasser. You know, there there are a lot of other instances in which, um, especially girls and women of color, have been um, you know rape victims and survivors, and they didn't get nearly as much attention. So, um, so that was one thing I was looking at. Um, uh, I was also, yes, as you're saying, I was looking at some of the issues of um, uh, pornography and um, um, you know, sort of cyber crimes against. Uh, against women and yeah so uh you know i, I you know I'm, again i was sort of examining the ways in which um especially women's nudity and sexuality in terms of representation um have been used again as a silencing mechanism you know in different ways um uh women's bodies and women's um you know, sort of sexual imagery have been exploited to terrorize and torment women. And so mm-hmm. in those ways, sort of sex, be, you know, has become a weapon that is really used um, to to prevent women from, in a sense, speaking out about their sexual assault. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was really reflecting on was what the meaning of nudity is um, in our culture. Like, because it's so easy to use it, um, you know, to shame women in, in, in these ways, you know, through this sort of, through these kinds of cyber crimes, um, the non-consensual revelation of women's bodies. And, you know, really, again, it made me start to think about what, what does nudity mean then? What does the representation, especially of women's nudity mean? Um, and culturally, one of the things I talk about is sort of how nudity in Western culture has been used to demean and degrade people, Right. Slaves were stripped when they were sold at auction. You know, um, Archie Bartman, the Hottentot Venus, was displayed naked in a cage in Victorian times for people to gawk at. Um, um, you know, um, and in Hitler's concentration camps, the you know Jewish prisoners were stripped and sent to gas chambers, uh, and so on. So, you know, forcible nudity is a form of humiliation. So, 
uh, and in all of these instances, sexual overtones are at play. So, so mm-hmm. but then when you think about you know the nudity of men, of women, it's it's a lot more complicated than that because you know again you know going back to John Berger's famous ways of seeing essay, um, uh, nude women have been displayed by men for the erotic pleasure of male, male spectators, and so again there's a kind of expectation there. But then yes, I mean I've been also looking at. Um, recent studies of pornography and the the violent contact of pornography has been rising there's documentation mm-hmm. of that in recent years um and so in those spaces nudity women's nudity and women's sexualized bodies are really being um connected and linked with with violence against women so it's a context in which violence is seen as sexy and sexuality is seen as violence, where violence against women is the norm rather than an atrocity. And so I feel as though that is actually, again, contributing to rape culture uh, and also the ways in which women are, um, you know, being assaulted even in online Mm -hmm. places. And, um, And the prevalence of female nudity as compared to the prevalence of male nudity yeah, there's a differential there. I mean, women in pornography and everywhere are much more often uh, depicted nude than men are. Male bodies are protected. <laughs> and w- female bodies are for consumption. Yeah. Yeah. And for sexual consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that I'm, you know, that I'm opposed to nudity in some sort of prudish way. Like, I don't think it's shameful. I don't think it's sexual. Uh, you know, I don't think it's sinful. Uh, I think bodies are great, right? And maybe, and like all of us should have the freedom to be able to um, inhabit our bodies in whatever way we want and be able to, um, you know, uh, express express our sexuality in whatever ways we want. But when there's such a clear different, you know, gender differential and mm-hmm. whose bodies are on display and whose bodies are not, you know, when it's, you know, insistently women's bodies and and increasingly those that those representations are linked with violence. That's what makes me concerned. Well, and and how those bodies are displayed, right? I'm thinking about a topless man is not worth noticing. Yeah. A topless woman becomes a, a target for violence. Yeah, exactly. That's how it's interpreted. I mean, she shouldn't be. There should of course be a difference. But yet somehow it's seen that way. And and even if it's not always a target of sexual violence, it's certainly sexual objectification. It is sexualized in a way that it you know, a topless male body isn't. Yeah. I mean, so overwhelmingly it's, and and so much that it's not even noticeable, Yeah, right? There's no discussion of it. It's continually reified in things, you know, rules in school codes, et cetera. Yes, exactly. In the purchase of bathing suits everywhere, but Spain, it's, it's very, it's so clear. Um, Yeah. It's uh, and, and prevalent, Okay, um, the, I, so we're kind of closing in. We're running. We're getting a little short on time, so I want to kind of get to your final chapter, resistance, in which you examine um, a, the backlash against Me Too. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, there's been various kinds of um, backlash against Me Too. Um, you know, like some of it is just the idea that Me Too, like, um, has unfairly. Uh, you know, sort of given uh, given rise to like uh, condemnation of men and of all men that somehow it's um uh, and also that uh, that women are overreacting. You know that little um, 
you know, that um, little inadvertent sort of flirtations and things are now being turned into, you know, reread as sexual violence. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I think those, those critiques are really problematic that we need to look at them, you know, and see, is this really going on? And what I think, you know, and, and in fact, I, I, you know, I think this is, this is, this is interesting, but it's in, 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 in a very broad sense, basically untrue. Again, like women, know the difference you know there may have been maybe there were a few isolated cases of that sort of quote-unquote overreaction or uh you know maybe too harsh a response to an inadvertent um remark or something but in most cases when 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 women or other survivors of sexual violence report it you know it's often after a long time and after repeated instances and there's usually something there, you know, there's usually some real, real issue there that needs to be examined. So in a way, I think that's a bit of a dodge to kind of, um, uh, you know, repress, uh, you know, again, to, to silence women and to stop them from speaking out when, when things really, when there really are issues of sexual abuse and harassment occurring uh, and, uh, you know, silence again, other survivors too. Um, but I think also it's useful to, um, to look at some of the other, critiques of, of me too to look at um, for example the um, uh, you know the the fact that me too has been seen as kind of nominally inclu- inclusive but really is about the experiences of white women um, you know I, I you know I think there there are a lot of issues there that we need to like be sensitive to but only in the sense that it will help us to make this a more inclusive movement like I think we need to be, alert to the criticisms and to take them into account and then to see how we can build, you know, a more, you know, more coalitional, a more mm-hmm. intersectional, uh, you know, and to a more, you know, broader movement against sexual violence and to engage men as allies, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny. Uh, it's such a oh, funny is not the word. Yeah. Interesting how you can see the privilege at play here. Mm-hmm. I mean, on on one hand, the uh, maddening, maddening like t- tantrums we saw men throw. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, this is a witch hunt. I never want to hear that phrase again. I know. But then, um, oh my god, shut up! But then also this. Well, you can't even talk to a woman. Well, I just won't have lunch with my colleagues then. It's terrible. I know the Mike Pence rule. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Mike Pence rule. Um, mother just doesn't like it. Um, I mean, so that, and which is, of course, a huge problem if we're going to ever move past this position to a culture in which women are more welcome in these spheres. You you can't not have lunch with your female colleagues. Yeah, I know. Uh, this is not a movement against men, and it's not a movement against those sorts of ethical professional interactions and it's not a movement you know it's it's a movement sort of in favor of more you know respectful and civil and uh you know professional interactions among genders and sexualities in the workplace right it's not about this the movement is really about challenging predators prerogative to abuse women sexually in the workplace and elsewhere so um, so I think you know we have to sort of refocus on what this you know what this whole movement has really been about and uh, and yes, speak back to these, um, you know, the false accusations of a witch hunt that, you know, has never been the goal of the movement. No, not at all, nor is it very serious, but it's, you know, this is, as you, as we continue to come back to, it's a silencing mechanism. Yeah. Uh, 
this is a way, this isn't serious. This is about hysteria. And it, it falls back on some pretty old tropes, like a couple thousand year old tropes yes. of how to silence women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then we also see the privilege question when we're talking about who, whose Me Too accusations are taken seriously. So right. that's another. Right. And that's something we do need to interrogate more and we do need to focus on a lot more and really try to think through how, um, how like more, not, not just more women, but more people who have experienced sexual abuse and assault and violence in various spaces and places can articulate those experiences and, you know, and how we can help them help every, you know, everyone both to heal and to resist, um, Mm. to, to really figure out how me too might fulfill its promise of a feminist transformation of our world into one free of sexual violence. One of the very positive answers you provide um, comes in this chapter as well. So I'm, I'm particularly interested. You have you of this in this very thoughtful discussion you make when you're talking about Aziz Ansari, mm-hmm. and there's a this discussion about the huge span, the the enormous gray area between fulsome consent and violent penetration. And that this is a big territory that's often contested. Um, And the sexual landscape in these borderlands is changing rapidly. um, And people go into these territories with conceptions about language, gender, sexuality, uh, pleasure that contain an amalgamation of a lot of different material that's conflicting, right? So we have this space where people aren't speaking to each other very well. There's so much miscommunication. And one of the things you talk about is the use of the word consent Mm -hmm. and how perhaps that might not be the word we want to use. I know. Like consent is a really freighted term. And there's more and more discussion among feminist scholars of sexual violence that consent is an untenable standard for assessing the veracity of sexual assault. Because consent, I mean, in and of itself is a really problematic word, right? It's still, uh, it speaks Mm -hmm. to a sort of a heterosexual power dynamic. Who's consenting to whom, right? I mean, what, like, it it indicates that the male partner, the male uh, participant in the sexual interaction uh, is the initiator, you know, is the one who is, um, uh, you know, the in, in some ways in charge of the sexual, of, of starting the sexual encounter. And the woman is always reactive. The woman has to consent or not consent, right? I mean, there's, that's really right. different from uh, a mutual agreed upon uh, sexual encounter. And so, um, you know, so that word consent itself, um, both uh, you know, both sort of uh, reinforces the the power dynamics at work, but also fails to take them into account, right? Because when we say consent, we're not really thinking through that. And I think, you know, that is one of the things that the Aziz Ansari incident um, brought up. Um, perhaps if if um, uh, if everyone isn't familiar with that particular si- situation, um, there was a long article published in on the website babe not babe.net that was. Um, uh, written about a, um, um, a pseudonymous person, a young woman named Grace, who had um, uh, an encounter with the comedian Aziz Ansari, in which she said she tried several times to, or in various ways, sort of non-verbally and through kind of mm-hmm. um, sort of gentle language to tell him that he wasn't interested in a sexual um, interaction, but he went ahead and had sex with her anyway. And um, so there was a lot of debate about whether that was a consensual encounter or not. 
And it's really, I, you know, I find just reflecting on that term consent to be incredibly important. Like the philosopher Susan Bryson points out, points out that we never talk about consent in the case of other crimes. Like there's no question of someone consenting to being robbed or murdered. Or, you no. know, so why is consent, you know, why does that become such an issue with a rape? And, and the idea too of how one might, what, that's, there's so much space for misunderstanding what consent might mean, right? With this woman in particular, she talks about, she just got quiet and she would kind of, she would turn away and she did these things and she's not yelling no, right. but she might as well be, right? At the way, the way consent looks is so different. But yeah, I mean, then there is that idea that there is some proposition that's being made mm-hmm. and, and, and that, um, and then you give permission for something to happen to you. Yeah, right. And so you're always reactive rather than the, you know, the, the concept of sex being sort of mutual, right? And, um, con- you know, something that's decided together and right. an ethical interaction and engagement. Um, yeah. Yeah. Was, was this a desired event is another way of thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. And desired on the part of both parties or all parties, you know, depending on what's happening there. Um, um, but you're right. And I think this also goes back to the, again, a very old trope where uh, if a woman doesn't fight, yell, scream, run away, then somehow it's not rape, right? Somehow she's sure. for it. And a lot of women just go still for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes they're afraid, you know, given the fact that so again, so many women are actually brutally not not only you know not only raped i don't want to minimize rape but but in addition to being raped they're beaten or killed you know that there's the the, Mm -hmm. this this always present fear of you know that kind of violence and so sometimes women just go along with an unwanted sexual um uh situation not because they want to but because they're afraid of even worse consequences if they do struggle um so, you know, there's, there's that, there's, you know, there's so many different reasons why there's sometimes women feel as though, you know, maybe, you know, they've internalized a lot of these myths. Maybe mm-hmm. they feel as though maybe they did ask for this. Maybe they did do something to bring it on. You know, like there's so many different reasons why um, a woman might not react in that completely. Or sometimes they're just taken by surprise and don't have, the means to resist in those, you know, those, you know, screaming, fighting ways. So there's just a lot, there are a lot of reasons why, you know, why we need to think differently about what constitutes sexual violence. Uh, Yeah. And how it plays out, what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are certainly these situations where parties have, there are two or more people involved in a sexual encounter and they are reading this differently. Mm -hmm. And that's about a cultural understanding and a cultural conversation that we're part of that's not clear and healthy. Right. Which is why we need to be talking about this a lot more. You know, we need to be bringing all this to the surface and really thinking through it so that uh, so that more and more people have a clearer understanding of what welcome sex and assenting sex is. I'm going to avoid the word consenting, consensual. Yes. <laughs> right. But what is, what is welcome desired, a sexual encounter? Yeah. So... You know, so is that is that the conclusion, or is is that the impact of the Me Too movement? Do you think more conversation? You know, I think it's had so many different um, impacts, and uh, 
um, outcomes. And that's, I think that's one of them that we certainly it's, you know, there, there has been that kind of silence breaking, you know, I want to honor that, that we are talking about these issues more. And I think that's really productive and progressive. Excellent. What else, what other kind of uh, impact has this movement had, do you think? Um, one of the things that I write about um, uh, in the book that I'm thinking about more and more is the um, the notion of vulnerability as a starting place for um, for resistance, right? That that in in a sense that what the, even just the phrase "me too" is an acknowledgement of shared vulnerability to sexual violence, and that that sharing and that that acknowledgement of vulnerability was the the catalyst for anti rape activism, collective anti-rape activism that spread, you know, across the, the globe. And, and Tarana Burke recognized this when she started her work. You know, she said many times that that speaking it and sharing it, um, you know, among people who have had this experience is the grounding for solidarity um, against it and for healing. And so, um, so I want to, like, one of the things, one of the, um, the outcomes of the movement, and I think one of the points I'm trying to make in this book is that we need to rethink vulnerability, you know, and not see it as a weakness or an individual failing or, you know, even something that we have to like defend against. I think we should embrace vulnerability. And I think we should look at vulnerability um, as a way to examine the conditions that cause it. And as a starting point, again, for social justice of all kinds. Wonderful. Wow. All right. So um, this will be out soon. So you you're you're done with this for a bit, or are you? What's next? What are you working on now? Yeah, actually, it is. This is this is such a great segue from what the, the 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 things we were just talking about because um, I am starting to really think deeply about this concept of vulnerability. I really want to examine and um, use vulnerability again as a, a way to think about um, mobilizing social justice work and anti racist work and so on and feminist work. Um, uh, in a really intersectional sense, I want to look at. I'm going. I'm. So I'm writing. Uh, I'm starting to write um, some uh, essays, actually, um, reflective essays on not only um, vulnerability to sexual violence, but um, environmental vulnerability, uh, you know, racial uh, uh, vulnerability, embodied vulnerability, uh, vulnerability to, to you know to health risks like uh, the pandemic and how that's played out in terms of you know, race, class, and gender. Oh. And so um, that's really going to be the focus of my work in this next year is to is to re, re-envision and reimagine vulnerability. Oh, that's fascinating. That's a, uh, it's very timely. What a great idea. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm you. looking forward to reading that when you're done with that. I'm excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And the fun part of, you know, the process of learning about it and then writing it. Um, which is, it's just good. It is in, in overall a good. Um, all right. So thank you so much for joining me today. It was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed the book. Um, and I've had a, it's been a, a great day for thinking about these things. Well, I'm glad Yana, thank you so much for having me on the show. And it was really great talking to you about um, all the different dimensions of, uh, you know, Me Too and the media and rape culture. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks very much. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye bye. I hope so. Bye. 